It's time for the Raging Cajun Army, the only place where it's all Cajuns all the time. And now, here's your host, Matt Miguez. What's up? I'm Jerry Abear, along with Matt Miguez and of course our friend Man About Town, Josh Jagno. And welcome to another edition of the Raging Cajun Army. Today we have a special guest in the house, a former Raging Cajun great, Mr. Phil Devey. Phil, how's it going, man? Still good, man. Glad good stuff. You guys. So let's talk a little bit about your past as uh, a former Raging Cajun baseball player. So first of all, you were born and raised in Canada. You were a former Cajuns left-handed ace pitcher from 1997 to 1999. You were honored as a National Collegiate Baseball Writers Association First Team All-American in 1999. You were a two-time All-Sun Belt and two-time All-Louisiana pick. You helped pitch the Cajuns to two Sun Belt titles and three regionals, including a Super Regional in 1999. You were drafted in the fifth round of the 1999 Major League Baseball Draft by the Los Angeles Dodgers. And you played in the minor leagues with the organization for five seasons before enjoying a few stints with the Mariners, Red Sox, and Phillies organizations as well. And now you reside here in Lafayette, Louisiana with your family. That's a pretty good resume. Not bad. No, I wouldn't say that. Yeah, you did all these things. Did I do that? <laughs> I think you I love did. That. It's it's you know, it's really interesting because, you know, you were you were born and raised in Saint Jerome, Quebec province of Canada. They messed that up, it's a little shoot. Lachieu, Lachieu, okay. Quebec. Saint Jerome is, is our uh, is our rival city. I was never. Oh, that. okay. So you 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 were born and raised in Lachieu in the in the Quebec province of Correct. Canada. Yes. So I have to ask for starters. Okay, now when I think of sports in Canada, I think of skiing, hockey. Uh, what's the one where they do the curling? Curling. Curling. Yep. But yet you're a baseball great. So talk a little bit about how in Canada. How big of a sport is baseball, and how did you get into it over hockey, curling, skiing? What, what got you into baseball? Well, hockey was my first sport, but, I mean, we had the Expos at the time, so I was a baseball fan as a kid. Uh, we, we don't have high school baseball or anything like that. We have summer league, so I played for my local city for, for shooting baseball when I was probably maybe starting at 10. Um, but hockey was the primary sport that lasted, the you know, six, seven months out of the year. Baseball is about three months out of the year. And uh, so just as I got older, um, I just, you know, I fell in love with baseball and I was better at baseball than I was at hockey. So, you know, just at a certain point, I got to where I was playing as with as strong caliber as I could in Quebec. And I, I was just really wanting to play collegiate baseball. I wanted to see how I could handle myself with Americans. Uh, without ever having played against any Americans before. Wow. So, was it? Would you say the competition in Canada when you were playing, pretty pretty good? Yeah, we. I mean, we had we had good caliber players, uh, but it's just it's a it's a lot more raw. I mean, we don't have the same level of instruction. Uh, there is a a 
Baseball Academy in Montreal, which uh, like Russell Martin, Eric Gagne were part of, where you basically you go to school and play baseball essentially at the same time. So you're you're in school, high school, with all kids that are training for baseball. Uh, but even for that, uh, I, I was never asked or invited to be part of that. I guess I just didn't have the stature to uh, impress anyone to be invited to play in, 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 in that league, even at that time. So, I mean, I was really working against uh, against the grain to get myself over here. So, I, you know, I think it was a shock for a lot of the coaches and a lot of the people in Quebec that I even made it as far as I, I did. Yeah. You know, I don't think anybody really believed that I could. Yeah, we call them sleepers. You were a sleeper. I was definitely yeah. a sleeper. There's no doubt about that. I have a follow-up to that. How many months throughout the year can you even play baseball in Canada? Yeah, not, I mean, just depends on how long the snow stays on the ground, but probably. So it varies uh, every year? Yeah, I mean, it could be, you could be, you know, mid-May, end of May, sometimes beginning of June, and you're going to play through maybe beginning of September, you know, August maybe, somewhere around that time. Yeah. Okay. So, and then otherwise, you, you know, you're going indoors in the gym to, to try to practice, but but that's what got me here to, to stay here because when I, after I was drafted, it's just I can't train um, as well as I can staying in Lafayette, so... Um, you know, I ended up staying here even after I was drafted just for, to be able to train and get ready for the next season. Now, Phil, let me ask you this. You know, obviously, you know, you talk about being in Canada and not being able to play baseball, you know, for, for the whole year. What ultimately, what was the process like of you coming to USL, you coming down to South Louisiana, and was it a culture shock for you? Um, yes. I mean, all the above. It was a culture shock. I, I got some great stories and memories of uh, – Shoot, we, this, I mean, this could end up being a three-hour broadcast <laughs> and we're going through these stories, but the, the, the way I got here was my mom's a French teacher, came here for a teacher's conference. Uh, at the time, you know, I wanted to play Division One baseball, play college baseball somewhere, and she made it a point to meet Coach Robichaud, got his business card, came home with it. I basically called him every day for two weeks and just bugged him. Uh, we talked about the ice skaters, we talked about country music, <laughs> we talked about life in Louisiana. And then finally, he, and then I'd ask him a bunch of baseball questions, and finally he, he, uh, he just said, look, you know, if we got tryouts on these dates. If you can come down and try out, then uh, let's see what you got. So I brought my hockey equipment in case I didn't make the baseball team. Um, to walk over to the cage and home, play with ice skaters. First day here, uh, I get to meet my roommates. It was in Bayou Shadows. Uh, I walk into the apartment. And they're watching on AOC channel. They're watching a show. It was the KKK show. Oh my God! <laughs> what? So that was literally the first thing I walked into in uh, South Louisiana. Well, my dad's a big history teacher. He kind of, you know, he said, "You're going down south. You're going to Louisiana. Just, you know, just understand that the, the, the friends you're going to make are one or two generations away from slavery. So people's grandparents, you know, kind of that was the, the right. Mm -hmm. And so there will be a culture shock. Mm -hmm. uh, so kind of started off with that, then walking in the apartment, that's what I see, and I was like, oh boy, this is different. And that night, they took me to the plaza to go see Two Live Crew. And so that was, <laughs> I don't know if you guys are maybe too young, sure, you know, I remember Two Live Crew, crew. Yeah, so, I'm so, too young. All right, so my first <laughs> night in Lafayette was at the plaza to go see Two Live Crew, which is a you know pretty raunchy rap group. Um, it was fantastic. <laughs> I had a blast. And then the next day, we had our first uh, kind of meeting with everyone and got to meet all the 
the, the, my teammates and uh, you know I get to meet uh, pitchers that you know like I mean BJ Ryan was one of the first guys that I met and I'm a left-handed pitcher you know here's a guy that's six foot six and he's introducing himself as a pitcher and you know, right away, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm way out of my league here. What did I do? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so there was a lot of a lot of things that really hit me hard in the first week um, and took some time getting used to. So that fun adventure the first week, now that you're, get, you're getting acclimated, you're getting acclimated to the town, you're getting acclimated to your teammates, but what was it like playing for USL at the time? Obviously, the facilities are nowhere near what they are today. I'm sure the resources weren't were more limited back then. It, it was kind of a, I would say it would be more. It was it was more of a grind. Well, from where I came from, I mean, we literally our baseball fields. I didn't see an actual pitcher's mound until I popped, maybe played in a tournament when I was 16, 17, where you actually threw off of a mound. But other than that, I mean, I threw off of literally in like a cow pasture that was built into a baseball field. Um, I mean, that, that's kind of the facilities that I was used to. So coming over here, as as different as our field was as it is now, it was the Taj Mahal for me seeing it at that time. Like, USO is the greatest baseball field I've ever set eyes on. <laughs> so I was impressed back then with everything. I mean, I couldn't believe, you know, they'd give you a glove if you made the team. That was one of the greatest things ever. You, know? yeah, you were you were expecting to go buy your own gloves. Oh, yeah. I mean, you get a pair of cleats. You get a pair of turfs. Uh, I mean, that, that day uh, when you make the team, and it's like Christmas. So <laughs> that that I was real impressed with what we were getting at that time. I mean, looking back and seeing what the kids have access to now, it's night and day. But but for me, I mean, and for all of us, you give us a, give us a glove, a ball, and, and a bat, and I mean, we're ready to roll. We get uniforms, right? <laughs> I mean, that's literally. Yeah, what it was like we get uniforms. No, yeah. but it's interesting because um, I think in college sports now you see the evolution of facilities in all sports: football, basketball, baseball. But I think the biggest facelift here at UL in the past twenty years has been baseball. And I know Coach Robichaux had always said that they always took pride in doing work around the facility, and whether it was players, even to this day, you see players still. Cleaning the field after the game. Uh, do you remember that? Uh, like, I'll tell you that. As the, far as here's the ultimate story to prove what kind of person Coach Rob was. So this was maybe let's say a month in. Uh, I probably lost. I mean, I'm I'm already pretty small. I probably lost at least 15 pounds from the heat and the training. And I mean, I'd come home, I'd be throwing up, and I mean, it was brutal. And and we had a, a like a little inter squad game, and I just did not pitch well. And I went back to my apartment, and I was just, just feeling like, man, what am I doing here? Like, I, I, I was supposed to go to McGill University, in Montreal. I got accepted. I left there to come here. Uh, coaches back home all told me like you're crazy. The, I mean, these Americans, especially down south, there's no way you can compete. And then I see the guys that I'm training against and how big they are. And, and then I had, you know, I just had a bad practice. So anyway, so I'm feeling down on myself. I said, man, I got to clear my head and go to the field and just collect my thoughts and it might have been 10 30 11 o'clock at night it's pitch dark I walk all to to the Teague and on it on a uh, uh, man lift with a pressure washer is coach Rowe pressure washing the scoreboard himself at 11 o'clock at, at 11 o'clock at night wow. and, I'm, and I'm sitting there in the stands and he didn't see me and I've never told him the story to this day and I, I wish I would have but I'm, I'm looking at 
a, a Division One coach, and this is after I've, I've got to know him for a month and got to listen to him, and I was just like, this guy is the greatest coach I've ever been around. And then I see this, and and uh, that moment hit me so hard. I told myself, I will do everything I possibly can to make this team. I've got to be coached by this guy. So that that's how much pride he had in in the stadium and getting things right and everything making sure that it's done properly uh i mean that 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 clock that says cajuns mm -hmm. that's on the scoreboard that's the same clock that he was pressure washing every time i see it i think about that story and um yeah it was it was hung the year rope came in 95 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yep and then they when they, they they made sure to keep it and they put it up when they did the scoreboard so that every time i see it that's what i think about and i mean he was the kind of guy that he's there's nobody else that I've ever met in my life that will tell you what to do and like where he, where he'll preach it and he will do it like he, he's he's a man of his word he'll tell us to make sure our locker's clean and he's always on us to make sure that you know we're picking up the ground and all that but at 11 o'clock at night he was the one doing it himself so it was just it was just really I mean I was awestruck when I saw that it was really impressive um, but it, that that's you know that's the kind of character he had and that's what he tried to instill in us you know Phil you talked we talked about the you pitching on a team that won you know a couple conference titles and even played in a few regionals and in particular in 99 you got to go to a super regional in Houston and play against Rice in the Astrodome what was the atmosphere like playing you know in a in a pro stadium and you know a trip to Omaha on the line. Yeah, it was it was it was a, a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I we I can't we weren't intimidated. The the regionals, I think we have to play Texas and I forget the other um, the other schools in that in that regional. But we we were um, we were forced to be reckoned with. I mean, we were fearless. We we feared nobody, and and that's that's the kind of mindset that Rob. You know, really instilled in us, and he and he had the kind of players that that kind of had that in their DNA. Uh, Rogue just needed to really bring it out. I, you know, we just felt like we could have beat any team in the country, and so you, you could put us playing anywhere. We can go play some back, you know, backyard baseball. You can put us in a pro stadium, and um, you know, unfortunately, we you know things didn't work out for us. We won the first game, and then ended up losing the next two, and it was heartbreaking. I mean, that was tough being that close to getting to Omaha. Especially, you know, wanting to do it for, for Coach Rogue. Uh, you know, you, you don't know how many times you're going to get a chance to be in that position and be one game away from Omaha. And, it, you know, it didn't work out. But in, in hindsight, what we went through prepared the 2000 team mm -hmm. to do what they did. Because, you know, a lot of the same baseline guys were there. And, and these guys, if, when you look back at the, the roster, like 97, 98, 99, 2000, is the as of right now, the, the greatest generation of UL, USL teams there have been. And when you look at the base of guys that were in there, like Scott Doman was a walk-on, didn't, didn't be, wasn't offered scholarships anywhere. Rick Heidel got no offers anywhere. Stephen Feehan got no offers anywhere. Um, you know, I was in the mix. Uh, we had some, some Juco transfers like Nate Nelson, Will mm -hmm. Hawkins, uh, Danny Maziotti. Mm -hmm. Those are all guys that out of, out of high school, didn't get offers to go play big schools, and then had to go the JUCO route, and then came over to us. 
So everyone had a chip on their shoulder. Everyone had something to prove. And anytime we played a big marquee school, it was all about showing them that they screwed up, <laughs> that, that, that they, they should have taken a chance on, on, on us, and we were out to prove something. You know, Coach Rube always had a history of that. Uh, anytime he took a bunch of guys that really weren't heavily looked at, those were always his best teams. Yep. I find even the 2014 season, most of those guys are local guys from Louisiana, Texas. I mean, not they weren't from California, Florida. They weren't like these heavy recruits. They were just a bunch of local guys who wanted to play for the local team. Yeah. Um, was Coach Robe, and as much as you, you and your, your former teammates admired Coach Robe, how intense would he get sometimes? Uh, he was super intense. Like, well, we always laugh uh, at the new generation of guys to say that they had no, they had no idea. Like, almost like Robe became a puppy dog, uh, which is not the case because we heard some stories uh, from some of those guys too. But his intensity was not this exactly the same as it was with us. I mean, he was. Uh, um, Give us a story. We always ask for this. This is one of our marquee questions is give us one of those moments that, you know, those legendary no road stories. Not many people have heard something that you can bring up from the past that would be fun to listen to and well, kind of shock I mean, you we, at the time. We, we've had a lot of uh, like 5 a.m. Uh, running sessions uh-huh. because maybe something didn't go well or a group of guys didn't do what they were supposed to be doing and you know, and looking back, I mean, Rogue was living in Crowley, so he was having to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to come basically discipline us right. and, and make us run. <laughs> oh, so man. I would be probably twice as mad as he was to have to go through that. But I'll tell you, which which is not even a story that I was involved in, but I heard this a couple of years ago, and I didn't even know this happened. But So I, I'm, a, I'm not even a first-person participant. I don't know if you guys heard this story, the 2000 team, that – they went through a, a, a rough stretch where I don't know how many games that they lost in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, then they, they really did not play well. It was a home game. And Rogue got real upset, told the whole team, we're running the mole 5 o'clock in the morning, meet me at the track. So Coach Rogue, Coach Semino, Coach Bab, we're all out there. It was about 4.50, 4.55. There's no other cars in the parking lot. And Coach Rogue says, man, the – we just lost the team. They revolted. They're, they're, you know, this is it. Nobody's showing up anymore. And uh, I guess our season's done. All of a sudden, he sees the entire team running down Bertrand, coming down Reinhardt Drive, into the stadium, and then and then going to meet Coach Rowe and said, "All right, Coach, we're we're all here. D- do whatever you need to do to us. We're ready." So Scott Doman. And Nate Nelson told everyone on the team to meet at the apartment complex at Bayou Shadows at 4:30. Told them if none of you guys, if any of you guys aren't willing to go through this, don't come back on this team. You're done. Everybody show up at 4:30. So everybody showed up at the apartment. They jogged from there all the way to Cajun Field, and then told Coach Robe, "All right, let's go." And then Robe says, like that moment, he said, "All right." We got a team that can do some damage, and we're going to Omaha with these guys. That's so yeah, awesome. yeah. And sure enough, <laughs> yeah, that's yep. awesome. The rest, the rest is history. The rest is history for sure. So even though you came, you came up a little bit 
short in uh, to go to Omaha in nineteen ninety nine. Uh, you're drafted by the Los Angeles Dodgers. Now you left after your junior season. Correct. Um, the next year you're in the minor leagues, and I'm sure you're still f- keeping in touch with Coach Robe. You're still kind of following what the team is doing. Do you remember the, the when the Cajuns went to Omaha and where you were as far as were you able to follow them even though you had your own? Yeah, my, my memory is terrible. You, you can ask me questions about all kinds of things, and I, I'll just have a, a it's it's a blur. But there's some things you just don't forget, and that is one of them. I mean, I definitely kept up. I, I mean, still all my close friends were still on the team. Um, I had a guy that actually I recruited to come here, my junior Gordy O'Brien, mm-hmm. who was was. You know, instrumental to help them get there, uh, which is what I always tell the coaching staff. It's proven that you need at least one Canadian on your roster to make it to Omaha. <laughs> so, and it wasn't me, but it was Check the roster. Are we, are we good this year? Yeah, we have. Yes, one. we do. Not only do we have one, but he's from Montreal. Which actually, I retract my statement. You have to have at least one French Canadian. <laughs> Boom! French Omaha. Canadian. There it is. So now we got one. Here so, you go, folks. So you know, so quick, quick Canadian history question. Obviously, you know. British Columbia, Montreal, I mean, Quebec, all that stuff. Do, I don't know what the term would be for people that live in Quebec, but do you have hatred for British Columbia and the other provinces? I, I was grew up bilingual, so my mom is French-Canadian, my dad is Anglophone. But if I was 100% French-Canadian, I wouldn't say I'd have hatred, but French-Canadians are different than the rest of Canada. Actually, there was a vote before I came to, the last time I voted in Canada was a vote for Quebec to separate from Canada, become its own independent country. Wow. And and that vote, it was less, it was 50.5% to 49%. So it was 1% of voting away from Passing. the referendum that was for close. Quebec to be its own wow. country. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because in, in coming here and seeing like the French culture in Louisiana, um, Quebec is... is Essentially, they have language police in, in mm-hmm. Quebec. So if you own a business, your signage has to be predominantly in French. And they, they will fine you if it's not. Uh, so if you go to a restaurant and your menu is, you know, there's, there's a bigger font in English than it is in French, uh, they, they will get after you because they're very protective of the language. And then I'll talk to people here that'll tell me, you know, whether it was them or their grandparents, that when they were in school, they used to get in trouble if they spoke French. That's I right. saw that that's French mm-hmm. got lost. Yep. So Quebec's holding on to that, uh, and that's not going anywhere. So very, very proud, very. Um, but, there's, but 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 the history behind that is is you know is very significant. I mean, sure. the, the French and the British went to war, and sure. the last people that won were the British. Mm-hmm. So the French are still upset about it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but 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 good. The, the transition for me to come here, the, the the French culture is very much about family mm-hmm. and and just having a good time and and very open and it, it doesn't matter what social class you belong to it's it's um, you know everybody's very inviting let's let's drink a beer have a good time sure. and there you so go. in coming here I mean it, a lot of a lot of the same mindset did you know beforehand that Acadian the area this area was like that no it, it just I mean, worked literally out the, the, the me coming here, Literally on the plane, I'm doing research into Louisiana. So you picked the one area in the entire United States 
that was that full of closely resembles Quebec. Yeah. Essentially Canadian well, descendants. And, and, and that's just how it worked out because, I mean, I had no options. So, like, there was, there was, all I had was a business card. My right. mom could have gone anywhere and I would have still tried to, to, uh, in fact, I, I've made an attempt to go to Florida State one time, which, I mean, the story behind that is I, I threw a perfect game in the, in the state championship, which was the provincial championship, but uh, it's a province where, but, Anyway, so through a perfect game, it was in the newspaper. Someone happened to read it. They uh, happened to know my high school principal, I think is how it happened. So they got a connection to, tra- to track me down. They ended up showing up at my house and saying, hey, I'm so-and-so at Florida State University. We read about your perfect game. Uh, we'd like you to come and, and try out for our school. And man, it's unbelievable. So the day after Christmas. So the 26th was, was the, the tryout for Florida State. Myself, my older brother, and a friend of mine drove from Quebec all the way to Tallahassee. Uh, was, you know, 20-something hours, almost 30-hour drive. We leave Christmas Day, show up. I go to the field. Come to find out it was not a tryout. It was a Christmas camp for like 12 to 14-year-olds. And I'm 17, 16, 17, I'm asking questions like, well, this guy told me it was a tryout, blah, blah, blah. They had never heard of the guy. The guy had no association with, with Florida State University oh baseball. My oh, my gosh. And, yeah, so so I ended up, uh, they let me join the camp. I had to get my parents to wire me money to join the camp. And I got to meet Mike Martin. And, and, That's cool. Uh, and I told them, like, hey, I came all the way from Quebec. So, of course, they tried me out at first base. They let me throw or whatever. And, you know, there was no interest. But Did you uh, ear hole a 12-year-old? I dominated. <laughs> For the first time in my life, I was somewhat bigger than most of the other kids, and I threw harder than most of the other kids. But uh, but no, no scholarship offer was given to me. Now you know, obviously, you know, like like we mentioned earlier, you left Louisiana in '99 to go to go pro. Five years later, the 2004 Summer Olympics in Greece. You were invited by to represent Canada as a pitcher for the national team. Talk about that experience. You know what it was like to play with, you know, what's considered to be the best baseball players in Canada, and go to a country like Greece and participate in the Olympics. Yeah, that that was incredible. That was the the from '99 till that year in 2004, going through like the minor leagues and the professional ranks. The vibe is a little different um, as far as the the. You know, attitude amongst teammates. I made a lot of friends through the minor leagues, but um, and then in, in, in hindsight, it, it that that culture didn't jive well with my performance as far as what drove me to perform. Um, you're really competing against your own teammates at the end of the day because everyone's trying to get to the next level, get to the next level, and you got to outdo your own teammates to get there. So you know that vibe is a little tough. Well, in 2004, the the, the Canadian Olympic team. It was just like it was in college. Everyone was just so excited to play for their country. Um, everyone was playing for their team. Uh, just a great group of guys. Uh, the, the year before, we played in the, the, the Olympic qualifier, which was in, in, in Panama. It, the competition level is actually tougher than the Olympics because the way to qualify is they take the top two teams of all the Americas. So you're playing against United States, Mexico, the Dominican, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, Cuba. Uh, so it's the it, so you play in a tournament the year before, and the top two teams are the, is what qualifies the Olympics. So we ended up in the finals against Cuba, and and so us and Cuba qualified, but the U.S. who had a 
unbelievable team. Um, I'm trying to think of who managed. I think either Tommy Lasorda or um, the new manager for the um, for the for the Astros, Dusty Baker. Baker. Dusty Baker. And one of the two was the coach for for the team that year. And uh, yeah, the U.S. didn't qualify, and we did. So you know, going into the Olympics, uh, which you know we have to play Japan and we have to play Cuba again. Um, but but the fact that I got to go there, uh, it just you know, I mean that that was just an amazing moment. I got to I started a game on a Sunday, where we played Australia, and, uh, and that got us into the gold medal rounds. And I and I pitched a good game. Uh, it was nationally televised in Canada, and so you know a lot of people, family members and stuff, finally got to see me pitch, and and that was just, I mean, it was amazing. I, I got to meet all kinds of, of athletes and um, you know the USA basketball team at that time. You know, I got a bunch of pictures with, with me and Yao Ming and Tim Duncan and um, uh, Venus and Serena Williams, and uh, it, it was really cool, man. I mean. You want to talk about athletes and, and to humble you uh, in the Olympic Village. So every country is there, and all the athletes are there, except for the USA basketball team. They were on a yacht somewhere else, so they were of course, in the, in the of course village. They but I mean, I, I remember one day I went to the track. They had a, a huge gym. They had a track, like a running track, and and then they had a swimming pool. And we'd watch the swimmers just training in the pool. And here we are, a bunch of you know pasty white Canadians, and <laughs> you know just thinking we're in shape but seeing these machines I mean it's unreal I was on the track running and, and you know, I was jogging at a pretty decent pace and these five Russian women were just flying right past me like I'd have to be on a full sprint to even try to catch up to them and they were doing about eight laps of it and I'm going you know I'm just I'm jogging kind of my own business they're just flying right past me it, it was unreal the, the, that's crazy the, those are athletes I mean Baseball players are athletic, but going to the Allegedly. Olympics and, and meeting the, the type of people that I met and seeing them perform, I mean, boy, it was, it was impressive. Were there any big leaguers on that Canadian team? Yeah, I was about to say, do you have teammates of notable interest? Well, Justin Morneau was on the um, was on the team the year before, mm -hmm. and then he got called. He was in the big leagues, so he couldn't he, he couldn't play in the Olympics. Um uh, Russell Martin, I think, was on the team. I'd have to look at the jersey to figure out the names on there. Again, when I tell you my memory is bad, th this is proof of it. Um, uh, and I, can, I, I can name some guys that you probably wouldn't recognize that were in the big leagues, but not, you know, not. There's no marquee names that you that you would know. Um, I was pretty deep in the card collecting game back in the '90s. So okay, I might know a couple of obscure names. Yeah, the guy named Pete Orr. Uh, he played with the Braves for a little bit. Um, he was in the big leagues for a little while, um, but uh, no, those were good good group of guys. Very much like like playing with 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 UL. I mean, just a group of grinders and having fun and having fun. I mean, we had a blast. We 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 had the most fun out of any Olympic athlete, probably in the history of the Olympics. I would believe because we had a great time. Give us a give us an Olympic story. Um, okay. You can will, say anything, by the way. All right, I will share this story, as embarrassing as it is, but it is funny. So, the, we, we have to play Cuba. The winner of that game goes to the gold medal game. And we were losing by three runs, going into the ninth inning. They bring, a, they bring their closer in. I forget his last name, uh, but he was like Gonzalez. a Michael Jordan. No, it was, uh, yeah, close. It could have been. 
it was Lara or Laza, and I, I, I mean to look it up, but he was like the Michael Jordan of Cuba. Th- this guy threw about a hundred. He was on lockdown everywhere he went. The, the Cuban security guards were always around him so that he would not escape whenever they went in international tur- tournaments because that's what happened. Wow. Um, they defect? Yeah, they'd, live, like, they'd go play in a tournament overseas somewhere and they'd, they'd disappear in the middle of the night like an agent or someone would pick him up and they'd be gone. Uh, so he was on lockdown. But anyway, so they bring him in in the ninth inning. We're down by three. We lead off with a home run. Now we're down by two. They maybe get an out. We get a runner on base. Maybe another out. Get another runner on base. So now we got two outs, two runners on, down by two. Bring in a pinch hitter. This guy, Kevin Nicholson, he was a first-round draft pick. Hits an absolute bomb in the left field. Bottom of the ninth. I'm in the dugout. Everyone else is like, oh, my God, we're going to the gold medal game. The wind starts howling in from left field. Hangs the ball up just long enough for the outfield to scale the wall and catch it for the final out. Mm. Boom. Now we went from, like, guaranteed silver medal to now we got to play in the bron- for the bronze against Japan, oh. who was probably the best team there that year, Yeah, uh, t- talent-wise. And we had to play them in the morning. And this was a night game. So, boy, we were demoralized. We show up at the field. I just have a long way to go to the story. But anyway, so we're at the field, and uh, we, we do our stretching. And the vibe was just not good. Like, everyone's down in the, in the dumps and just not feeling it. And So one guy, he's looking at all of us. He's like, come on, guys, let's wake up. Takes his shirt, rips it off, throws it on the ground. He's bare-chested, doing his stretching. So the next guy looks over, looks at him. He takes his shirt off. Next guy has to, takes his shirt off. Next thing you know, our entire team is shirtless, stretching in the outfield, getting ready for the game. Now, Japan hasn't come in yet. There wasn't any fans in the stands. Security guards were there, whatever. So now we're all shirtless. Well, our manager is a guy named Ernie Witt, who played in the big leagues for a long time with the Blue Jays. He comes storming out of the dugout, stares at us like we thought we were in big time trouble. Looks at us, rips his jersey right out, <laughs> throws it on the ground. So now, uh, and of course, we had one one guy, Simon Pond, who's we've been good friends since, and he's well, I'll share with him this interview just because I said I, I called you out. He decides to strip down completely naked. What? <laughs> oh, Jesus! And runs out the center field and back. With security guards watching him, everyone's laughing. As he's putting his pants back on, Team Japan walks in the stadium. <laughs> Single file, like all perfectly organized. Professional. Professional. <laughs> We're shirtless. He's putting his pants back yeah, on. Yeah, he, he was just naked. And uh, Oh, yeah. And then they proceeded to whip up on us pretty badly. I think we lost by probably eight to ten runs. Oh. Uh, we didn't recover from that. Yeah, it looks like but eleven to two. There you the go. Final. Oh yeah, we got we got crushed. <laughs> I'm sorry, I haven't pulled up. So what we thought would be a team spirit moment of uh, get us up and running That's and great going. patriotism right there. Oh yeah, it, it, it did not work out. But as good as good good Canadians, we definitely had a great time. That's all that matters. <laughs> and you know what? But that's but that's like you said. That's the epitome of a grinder. You got nothing to lose, right? No, no, well, nothing to lose. Yeah, except your clothes. Except I hear <laughs> I hear those medals are heavy, anyways. Who wants yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, who wants that? Well, yeah. in, in retrospect, we're thinking about bronze medal. Like we we're so keen to get a gold medal, so the bronze didn't feel like much at that time. But in in hindsight, if I'd have gotten a bronze medal, 
I'd, I'd still be wearing it right now. <laughs> yeah. I have it on for the next right 15 now. years. Every <laughs> interview, every time I meet anyone. Just oh, yeah. have a bronze medalist. Hi, I'm bronze medalist oh, Phil yeah. Devey. <laughs> exactly right. So, following your, your, your big experience in, in Greece, you, you play a few more years in the minors. And then after you're done playing in the minors, you had mentioned earlier that you you trained here in Lafayette many many summers. Right. Uh, what brought you back to Lafayette? Well, right from so drafted in '99, so right after that, um, yeah, in the off seasons, I, so I was right back here. You know, okay. I still have my buddies here, but I, I could train here. I'd, I'd go to the field and work out and all that. And then, you know, I, I met my wife here. So in 2000, we met, and then you know that that kind of kept me here. So we got married in 2004, and then we have three kids. Uh, so the, it you know just it became my 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 home um, pretty quickly. So the, the the roots are planted here, and, and there's no turning back. <laughs> it's like a home away from home, technically. Yeah. Well, now this is home. I actually at at this stage of my life, I've been I've been here more than half my life. And we kind of have some Canadian ties here a little well, bit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, as I tell people, it just took me longer to get here than <laughs> than the rest of the. You're about 250 years behind, but you're here. You're I here know, now. <laughs> made it for a while, but I made it. So, Phil, from the time that you were in the minors to coming back to Lafayette permanently, how much was you on baseball? You know, a part of your life during that time frame, and did you keep in close contact with with Coach Robe? Yeah, always, always kept in close contact with Robe and Bab and. Um, I didn't get to go to as many games as I would have liked. You know, once you start having kids, they, they have their sporting events and all that kind of thing. So we, we went maybe two, three, four games a year. Um, and uh, But I always, you know, I, I always would visit with Rogue. We'd always text or I'd call him. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he was, he was uh, uh, I mean, I, I had to describe him. He's like... Um, Yoda to Luke Skywalker. I mean, you, you know, you, you just gravitated to stay around uh, people like that, and and uh, uh, you know, it, as as many times as I could, I'd, I'd go sit with them and, and talk to them, and just if I needed a pep talk, if I needed help, if I needed some words of encouragement, if I needed advice, if I just wanted to go and 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 BS and and have some good laughs, and and I walked into his office, and he always had time. I mean, that was the yeah, that, that was one of the, you know, he's got a gazillion great attributes, uh, and that was that was one of them. He always found time for anyone and everyone. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing that we're all gonna miss, um, just not having access to him uh, like like we did. No doubt. So last year, very tough year for Cajun Nation. Very tough year for guys like yourself, former players, and just the raging Cajun family when Coach Robichaud passed away. But there was so many, there was so much talk of how we're going to honor a coach that was larger than life, and in comes an idea of whether it's you know there's stuff being thrown out there with fans retire his number, build a statue, name the stadium after him. You came up with an idea that you're currently working on right now um, of, a, of a memorializing Coach Rogue. How did you come up with that idea? Did you come up with it by yourself? What What were the first steps in the foundation that you came up with this idea to not only memorialize Coach Rogue's show, but bring something to the Cajun Nation that we can remember Coach Rogue forever? 
I mean, it was an easy, it, like it was a no-brainer. Um, I mean, everyone had the same thoughts. Everybody's thinking the same thing. Everybody feels that uh, the stadium needs to be renamed after him. There needs to be a statue for him outside the field. And, uh, I mean, that's how important he is to, to the university. I mean, he's one of the, if not the, he's definitely one of the greatest ambassadors that the university has ever seen. Uh, and I don't have any control as to whether the stadium would ever get renamed after him. But my thought was, okay, there is one thing that I can do uh, or figure out how to do. And, and this was it. So as soon as the thought popped in my head, instead of waiting for someone else to try to do it or see if the, the school will do it or see if something else will happen, um, I mean, it was instant. It was not only not only do I have to do this, but I've got to rally the troops and get all my former teammates and everyone else on board because if he was sitting in front of me and I and I ever said, you know, hey, we want to build a statue for you, I mean, he would literally punch me in the face. I mean, there, there was no way he would find that to be accept, acceptable whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But under these parameters of it coming from his former players, uh, that's the only way that it, this could be done. I mean, this, it, this, it's absolutely the only way. Uh, what hits me is when you got his thousandth win, uh, Scott Doman and I had talked about wanting to do something for him. And so we, we had raised some money with, with some, some other former players and we bought him a trip to Hawaii for him and his wife. I remember so that. We, we got yeah. him like, you know, uh, we, we got him first class tickets we wanted to send him somewhere where we had to fly because he hated to fly so we thought that was fun <laughs> and then we figured okay well, let's do it first class so maybe he can be somewhat comfortable in doing this and then we presented it to him on the field and uh, I remember that game yeah and it, and it was uh, you know kind of the I guess a backdrop to that story um, which, which I'll, I'll tell you in a second but um, so we, we, we present him with, with the trip to Hawaii and then we meet him after the game. We were all at, at a restaurant in town, and he came and met up with us. And so he tells us that, you know, the school had given him a plaque or there was something that they had given him. Uh, and I don't know exactly what it was, but his name wasn't even on it. And they were going to just did it for show in front of everyone, and then they were going to maybe engrave it later. And But it just – Coach Rowe did not care if the school gave him anything or, or, or not. But it was just the fact that, okay, they didn't think – did they not prepare for it ahead of time? Did they not think he was going to get a thousand win and have something already set up? Like they were, you know, they're kind of figuring out after the fact. And so he was a little, I would say, miffed or bummed about that. Um, but, you know, I, I'd be pretty disappointed if it was me. You get your thousandth win and you get a plaque from the school and your name's not even on it. And so here we come with a trip to Hawaii. And he was got really emotional and he, he started, you know, he, he was... He, crying and uh, I've rarely ever seen that out of him before and he just said how much it meant to him that this came from his players his former players and um, and he you know he, he spoke for a while to us and you could tell how, how the emotions were really getting to him and how important how, how much it meant to him that it came from his former players and that's all he ever wanted like that's all that's that's all he would have wanted so this idea of coming up with the statue and memorial for him and that it's funded entirely by his former players. Um, he's, he's sitting in heaven 
no doubt when, when we reveal it and everything that that he will be happy uh he he, he will not punch me in the face he will not strike me down <laughs> uh, he, he would he will be really honored to know that this came from from former players and i'm talking about guys that from you know, this guy said he, that he coached at McNeese that contributed. You got guys that redshirted that didn't even play. Uh, I, I got a donation from a guy that lives in California that played one year here, maybe had 10, 15 at bats, barely played, uh, never came back. This was in '97 he was here. He had never come, he has not come back to UL, and he sent a thousand dollar donation. Wow. Um, I mean, how do you, how do you? make your mark on a person in eight months time or nine months time or how much time he was here. I mean, it was less than a year, really, when you're looking at, you know, exactly how many days he was with Rogue. Yeah. And that you you were that important that he may never come back to Louisiana. And, you know, that that the whole process of this is amazing to, to get donations, phone calls, texts, messages from guys from the last 30 years that uh, that he left such an impression on. I mean, the, the range is from having not even played to redshirted. You know, these are guys that could be spending the rest of their life saying how much they dislike Rogue because they could have been a superstar college baseball player and he robbed them of a chance of it. And, right. you know, and, and that's not even the case. There's guys that have grown up and saw what a special person this was yeah. all the way to, you know, two major league all-stars, uh, sending donations I mean the, the, the I coach you know I coach kids and I, I coach my own kids um, any coach in the world to have the honor of having their former players do a statue for you and I'd be willing to bet and, and the, the sculptor and other people I've talked to have confirmed it with me that there is not another statue in this entire country that is paid for exclusively by former players. Like we're not talking about a, uh, you know, a major league uh, or or a, a, a statue that was funded by you know superstars in the sporting world or something that can just cut a check and do it. Like a collective group of, of hundreds of former players to be able to fund this. There's no statue in the country that exists. Uh, that really tells you all you need to know, and that's what makes. That's what made it my mission to get this done with former players because of what it symbolizes. Yeah. Like it's not a, it's not a glorification of Coach Rogue. It's it's a gift from us to to his family to the school to show how much how important this particular person was in our in our lives, and um, and then when we when we do when it is out and people get to see it, the it, it's not. A statue of it, it's a, obviously a statue of Coach Rogue, but how it's presented and the overall vibe of this monument is a testament to his message. It will always, for as long as it's there, be a constant reminder for everyone that looks at it, all the players that come out of the locker room that see it, a, a constant reminder of what's important, and and it's going to represent what Coach Rogue was put on earth to do. Um, so the fact that it was done by former players is extremely important and the, and the message that it's going to present is extremely important 
And those two things are, are why I'm a thousand percent convinced that Coach Robe himself would give this thing two thumbs up. Nice. That's phenomenal. You know, obviously, Coach Robert Show deserves to be honored. And like like you said, the only way to do it is it being funded by his former players. Now, Phil, I want to ask you, you know, ever, ever since the passing of Coach Robert Show in July, have you been in close contact with the Robert Show family? Yeah, right from the beginning of this of this journey, that was the first phone call I, I made to make sure that, you know, to see if they were on board, if it's something that they'd be accepting of, because uh, there's no way we do this without their blessing. And, of course, under the parameters that I was talking about, they were on board. They've been involved from day one, um, been in contact with, with Justin in particular. Uh, you know, we, we talk probably once a week. And, uh, and then Miss Colleen, you know, we, we talk pretty often as well. And so um, our relationship has grown, you know, through this process, which, is, which has been, you know, which has been great. Uh, it makes me feel that much closer to, to Coach Rove that um, you know I, I get a chance to just just kind of have a something that will tie me to the family forever, um, and that's that's you know another reason why I'm involved in doing this because that's a that's a huge gift for me. I mean, when you think about where I came from to going through this process, like, this is what I came here to do. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I really feel that strongly. Like, I didn't I didn't come here to play baseball at, at UL. I didn't come here to get drafted and play professionally. Like, I made it here. I called him for two weeks until he told me to come here and went through that process to get here, right here at this moment. Like, this is what I came for. And it's to do this because when I'm dead and gone, this statue is still going to be here. And I'll be able to say that I helped put this together. And that's way better than any accolade, award, victory, anything. Um, so it, it, it was, it's a lot of hard work, but it's a no-brainer. I mean, this, the, the fact that I could do this, this is a... It, it's an incredible honor, um, and and I'm I'm just um, yeah I can't wait until we we you know we reveal it. It's how how has the networking been? Because there have been hundreds of players, whether it was at UL, USL, McNeese, that all played for Coach Robichaud during his thirty plus years of coaching. How has the networking been with those former players? As far as you keeping in contact with a lot of these players, other players telling. Other former players, like how has the networking been with whether it's trying to raise money or just being aware of this project? Yeah, it's been good. Uh, when we started, I had, uh, it, and I was actually at the funeral. Jace Conrad came up to me, and, and uh, you know, we didn't know each other that well before, but we had a good conversation. And he, you know, he said, "Man, if you ever involved in any projects or doing anything like let let me know because I want to get involved mm. so when I thought about this I called him I said look I, I know something you can do for me I, I need you to help me go through all the media guides and write down every single player that's that you know you, you're finding names of that played for Coach Rowe so he put a, a nice list together um, I, I got in contact with a couple guys that were at McNeese and try to get them to help and then we, we tried to carve out by 
chronologically of kind of groups of, of, of players. And I, and I tried to find a guy that I could assign to that generation mm-hmm. and say, okay, find me as many emails that you can, as many contacts through Facebook or whatnot. And then we kind of circled back and we chipped away at a database of players. And, you know, Facebook's been super helpful. Um, we got a Facebook messenger group that I put together where there's probably 300 something players in. Um, got you know a bunch of email addresses. Had to cycle through those. Some kickbacks. Let's you know let's find the real address. And th- that's been the biggest challenge is because I want to make every single person aware. I want every single person that ever played for Coach Rogue to have a chance to be a part of this. And um, yeah, I mean there's guys that people have not heard from in years and years and years and years and years that we tracked down and. And said, "Hey, you know, we're doing this," um, and and then of course, you know, that leads to a, a contribution of some kind. Wow. So yeah, it, it's social media has its has its downfalls, but uh, but it was very helpful for this for this this purpose. <laughs> networking, sure. yeah, networking yeah. for sure. Yeah. So, a few weeks after Coach Rope had passed last July, really there were there was one name that came up to fans, to just anyone associated with this program to carry on Coach Robichaud's torch. And I think it's safe to say that majority, if not almost every single fan, could think of one name, which was Matt Deggs. Coach Matt Deggs gets hired on. And I think that the story comes full circle because for in, in Coach Deggs' case, he credits everything to Coach Rogue for not only saving his career, but pretty much saving his life, saving his family, the impact that you know, you talked about with Coach Robe having on you, it's sort of that same impact on Coach Deggs. So from someone who played for Coach Robe to a coach like Coach Deggs to coach for Coach Robe, do you feel a connection there? Um, I've gotten to know him through this process, so I didn't know him. But, you know, I, I knew when he was around, but I, I never really got to know him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, through this process, I've gotten to know him. Uh, a lot better and and I just I think he's fantastic um, I think he's great for the program I think the players have responded really well for him I think he's the perfect fit he's the perfect guy to come in at this time I think the whole staff is perfect uh, Nolan Ryan could walk in the door tomorrow and say hey I want to be the pitching coach here and as alumni I'd tell him it's not your time uh, you're not you're not good enough to be here right now mm-hmm. the, the BJ Ryan when he came uh, so This was, I guess, when BJ signed his first big contract. Uh, I didn't know the story until three, four days after Coach Robert passed. I went to the stadium and I just sat down and I, I looked at every YouTube video I could find. I was going through social media. I, like, I blocked all that off and I just, I needed to reconnect to do something. I was in a fog and I, I spent three hours there just listening to him. And he did this radio interview with Moon Griffon. And in the interview, he talks about how when BJ signed. I forget what the contract was, but it was a pretty big contract. He said, uh, so Coach Robin, the interview says, well, the question that was asked to him was, at some point you started to be a lot more uh, outgoing with your faith. And, you know, what, what, what happened? That wasn't real prominent when we were playing. You know, it was always a part of it, but it wasn't as strong as it is now. Mm-hmm. He wasn't as vocal about it as, as, as he was now. And so he said, um, he said, when BJ signed his contract, you know, my ego kind of kicked in. I was looking for... Um, some interviews that he does where he thanks me 
and I found an article in the Dallas paper and I started reading it and the first chapter he didn't or the first paragraphs he didn't say anything about me then the second paragraphs he didn't say anything about me and I'm listening to this interview I'm listening to Rogan I'm picking him my back of my hand I was like oh BJ I hope you said something about him <laughs> and then he said in the third chapter he says third paragraph he says um and uh and my college coach uh Tony Robichaud uh was was a great pitching coach but he helped me become uh a, a better person and a better man and for that I'm I'm thankful and so when Coach Rob hurt read that, Robe says light bulb went off in his head, and and um, his perspective changed on what his real purpose is as a coach, and so his style, philosophy, and things that he said publicly and in interviews and things changed, and he says it's because of B.J. Ryan. So circle back to now, I mean. The, the pitching side of things for the Cajuns was Rob's baby. I mean, that's what he was known yeah, for. Right. And look who's now all of a sudden is responsible for the pitching part of the Cajuns. It's the guy that changed Coach Rob's mindset or made him, made the light bulb go off in his head as far as what his purpose is in life and what his purpose is as a coach. And now BJ's the pitching coach here. I mean, what more perfect person can you have to be handling Rob's baby than the guy that changed his... his or, or allowed him to have his awakening of what his purpose is. For sure. And then, you know, Coach Daggs, it's the same thing. I mean, uh, everything that he went through in his life and, and, and what Rogue was, was responsible for, um, it's a real tough position to be in. I mean, how do you sure. take over for a guy that is such a legend? Right. And it's the transition is perfect. Um, and then having Coach Bab there, still involved in the program is extremely important to all of us. Uh, without Bob being there, our bridge is gone. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we, Deggs is there and BJ's there and whatnot, but Bob is the bridge for us. Uh, he's the one that is the, the glue that's always been there. He's been here longer than Coach Rogue was. I mean, he played here and then he transitioned to, a, to an assistant coach when Rogue came on. And um, uh, without him being here, it would feel a lot more different than it is. With him being here, it's it's just a passing of the torch, and um, and the the heartbeat. And, and Coach Diggs and I talked about this early on uh, when I was listening to him and his his mindset of what he wants to do. And uh, and I told him, I said, Coach, the one thing that I, I can tell and that I appreciate, and I know that us as former alumni are going to love. Is that the heartbeat of what makes Cajun baseball successful is remaining the same. He's going to have a little bit more of a hitting angle to it. That's what what he does. He's getting you know the, the the optics of it might look a little different. How his practices run might be a little bit different. But he's looking for grinders. He's looking for guys with an attitude. He's looking for guys that are bringing their lunch pail to work and 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 they're going to bust their butts. He's not looking for prima donnas. Like what Robe says about, I, I need guys drinking from the water hose. Oh not, yes, favorite that's, that that's don't want Mama bringing them a Gatorade. That's exactly what what Coach Daves is all about. He wants guys that are going to drink from the water hose, and it's a, and it's proven that our success is with guys that drink from the water hose, and that's what the the namesake of our university is all about. That's what a raging Cajun is. That that's not it it it's 
it represents what this area is. Not not Louisiana in general as a state, but this area in particular. This, this is Cajun culture. This is people that were kicked out of a country that had to, I mean, fight their way down here through through the worst of conditions, through hostile territories, to land in a place that nobody wanted to inhabit. That's right. And and that's the DNA of the people from here. And our successful teams, baseball program, any program, that's the heartbeat of that team. It's it's the DNA of what a Cajun is. Mm-hmm. And Coach Daggs, that's his mindset. And um, so the transition is perfect. We're not looking for the, the I mean, if we can get them, but it's gotta, they gotta have the right mindset to go with it. But we're not looking for the five-star, blue-chip, superstar, high school player that was catered to. Uh, forget him. Now, if you came from the right upbringing and you, your parents humbled you and, and you're coming in to work, then yes. We'll, Please come. Yeah, yeah you'll fit in. <laughs> but if you're, if you're, you know, you got great numbers, you throw hard, you, you can hit, but you need to be babied and you need to have right. six different uniforms and you need to have the... The, 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 the greatest facilities and, and we need to promise you that you're going to be our starting shortstop, then forget you. You don't belong here. Right. We, you don't win with guys like that. You, you win with guys that, that have to crawl from Canada to come to that's right. to this area. And um, and that's what Deggs is bringing. That's what this team, I can I mean, I can feel it. I can see it from the guys that are in this uh, on this roster. Uh, I've gotten to know some of the guys. Um and that vibe is there. Like it's back. It's back to where it was before. Now, feels you, like that. Now these I are guys. Th- these aren't. Uh, th- these are guys that were recruited and asked to come here from Coach Rove's staff. Right. Uh, the, the guys that are that are that are here now, and we we had a whole cleansing of players from last year going into this year, and you got a lot of JUCO transfers that are coming in that are going to play a key role. But these are Ju- JUCO guys with an attitude. Yeah. Um, and you got, you know, a guy from Arizona, you got a guy from Iowa that's here, you got a guy from Michigan, you got a guy from Montreal. Uh, all guys that are now here as Cajuns that found their way here, and they got some attitude. And Do they fully understand the situation they've walked into? Do they appreciate it? I mean, it's very difficult to ask a 19- and 20-year-old to understand that 20-plus year history of a love affair of a community with their baseball coach. I understand that's a difficult ask, but do you feel like they get it? Yeah, because when they came, the, the great thing is we have a reputation of success here that they were drawn to that got them here. Because these were guys that did really well where they were, so they had opportunities in other places, and they were drawn to come here and for Coach Rogue, for the, the the coaches that recruited them, um, and um, you know, and then the stadium's unbelievable. They know the fan base that we have, so they were drawn to that. And I think along the way, once they, they committed, they got here, they practiced, uh, they, they see the vibe, and, and some of the players that were here the, you know, years past, that they're, now they're teammates, mm-hmm. um, now they know. They had a sense. They had some things that drew them to us from the, the, the coaching staff and the facilities. But now that they're in, uh, they, they're, they're, they're seeing – they're getting a, a sense of what it's like to be a Cajun baseball player, but that's even before the first pitch of the season. Yeah. Once opening weekend starts, 
it, it's going to be pretty eye-opening for those guys. I think so. And yeah. it'll be it'll be a everything they thought that it was going to be will be that times a hundred, especially this opening weekend. Yeah. And that should fuel them even more um, for the success that hopefully they they achieve. Now, does it translate to? you know, 50 wins and going to Omaha and, and, and those kind of things. I mean, the jury's there, and a lot of things have to line up for that to happen. Of course. But the one thing that I am convinced of is the product on the field is going to be everything that you'd want a, a Cajun baseball team to represent, um, whatever that means, whatever record that means. But they're going out every game, giving their 100%. They're going, they're going in with that throwdown attitude that we've been looking to get back. Yeah. Um, and, and have a bunch of guys that drink from the water hose. And I think they got character guys, which is key. I think they got character guys that are going to weed out the ones that need their power aid. Because that power is going to get knocked out of their mouth, and they either got to get to the water hose or they got to get in the bleachers or out of the stadium because they won't belong on this team. So it sounds like we have some leaders. We got some, we got some leadership. Uh, we got some, some, some great talent. We got a great coaching staff. We got all the ingredients. Uh, all the ingredients for success. Does that mean we're going to have the success? I mean, we're going to find out. But the, the ingredients are there, and it's um, boy, it's a team that the fans I think are really going to enjoy watching. I'm kind of curious now because, as a former pitcher, um, and and the fact that you played with BJ, and obviously BJ's career speaks for itself. You know, whether it was at UL or in the majors. You understand Coach Robes' pitching philosophy. BJ understands Coach Robes' pitching philosophy. And the past couple of years, the the bullpen has been pretty young and inexperienced. Coming into this season, what expectations can we see? And I'm asking you this as a former pitcher because you obviously know a lot more than just like me as an ordinary fan. What are you seeing as far as what BJ is coaching with this pitching this pitching staff right now? Well, and it's not complicated. People overcomplicate it. it, it it's, uh, Greg Maddox was one of the greatest pitchers of all time because he threw to the percentages. Mm. So he would throw the right pitch in the right counts, and more times than not, he would have success. Meaning, maybe one time this guy gets a hit, but he's going to go back to it because that's the right thing to do, attack the strike zone, work to try to get a ground ball double play with a runner off first, um, and so attack the strike zone is that simple attack the strike zone get ahead of hitters if you look at the stats of how a hitter hits when he's 0-1-0-2 it's a lot less than if he's 2-1-3-1 so don't get yourself in those counts don't give hitters too much credit I mean a lot of times that happens I, I did it in my career um, hitters are stupid I mean at the end of the day <laughs> and you know what honestly Part of my success was that in retrospect, especially in college, because you know I'm 5'11", I was 160 pounds. Um, at one point in my career, I was throwing, I think I showed up, my freshman year I had glasses on, I think. So a real nerd on the mound. And hitters would see me, and they would just be trying to just rip it and be undisciplined. And I, I mean, I'd take advantage of it and carve them up. I mean, that, that's... So, if you give hitters too much credit, I mean, you're, you're, no way you're going to be successful. 
attack the strike zone, get ahead, period, end of story. Uh, that's how you have success. And that's what BJ's bringing back. I mean, he, he has, uh, you know, one of his good friends was Doc Holliday. And, you know, when they play together, BJ learned a lot from him. And that was one of the things that he said Doc was, was a constant, was getting ahead of hitters. Get a guy out in three pitches. And you don't have to be uh, uh, you don't have to be real smart to go in with that mindset. I mean, that's that's as simple as it gets. That's how you're going to be successful as a pitcher, starter, reliever, closer. It doesn't matter. Get ahead, stay ahead. Period. End of story. Figure out a way to do that. And more times than not, you're going to be successful. I think it's safe to say also having a guy like B.J. Ryan as far as a recruiting tool is, it helps I, a little bit, I would think. That, that So we haven't felt it this year, but going into next year and years to come, as long as he's here, yeah, I mean, I can imagine being a parent in a, on a recruiting trip with your son that's a pitcher and saying, hey, this is a two-time Major League All-Star B.J. Ryan that's going to be your pitching coach. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of hard to say no that, to. That should give us a leg up over a whole lot of other programs, I would say. Just a little bit. So, um, Saturday, February fifteenth. Well, that whole weekend is going to be a memorable weekend. Uh, it's probably one of the most anticipated opening weekends for Raging Cajun baseball in a very long time. But the memorial unveiling is scheduled for Saturday, February fifteenth. Right? Um, what can we expect for that? Well. Come game day, the stadium, the, the, the statue will be unveiled and, and accessible to the public. We're going to have a private ceremony beforehand with the family. And then, um, and then yeah, I mean, what to expect? Um, expect to see a statue there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just enjoy the moment. I mean, the, the, this, that, that weekend is going to be full of emotions. Like, there will be some extremes. I had a few people ask me that. Like, what do you... How do you react to a statue unveiling of a, of a deceased coach, of someone that was that important? I mean, do you cry? Do you clap? Do you cheer? Like, what do you do? I mean, and I think it'll be all of it. I mean, I don't even know how I'm going to react to it yet. That's, I, I've thought about it a million times. Yeah, I'm bringing my sunglasses, I can tell you that. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. I mean, I, I know I'm going to cry. I know I'm going to laugh. I know I'm going to be excited. I, I know I'm going to be sad. Uh, I've been going through all of that for the last several months. So I've been going through that since since you know since July. Right. Um, it's just a nonstop roller coaster, and you know as he'd say, it is what it is. You can't control your emotions, and it, it, you know it's it, it's all good. You're, you're you're crying because you're you're sad that he's gone, but then you're you find a way to be thankful that he was part of your life. And then that brings you back and makes you happy. And then you, you know, we go through this with the statue unveiling, and it's just, it's, it's, it's just, it's too early. I mean, it's, uh, there's no doubt there was going to be a statue of Coach Rogue, but it should have been 30 years from now. Right. Um, but it is what it is, and it's happening now. So that part is sad, but the fact that, you know, you, we get to see this, and it was actually, here's a statue of Coach, and, and you get to do it in front of his family. I mean, that's that's just so emotional and, and exciting and happy, and but yet sad at the same time. It's just it's it, you know it's a really odd mix of, of um, how you're gonna feel. Mm. So and the fans are gonna go through that. Um, 
it, it, the, the, the great thing about it is one of the things that was important was that the, the Skip Bourbon statue, I think they talked about doing that for four years and they finally got it up. Um, I think they did it in November. We'll have a statue of Coach Rogue done in seven months' time. And we want, we really, I was really pushing hard to get it done for opening weekend because something really special has to be done opening weekend for Coach Rogue. Yeah. And some of the things that I had heard that, that were being talked about just wasn't good enough. Like it just was not going to leave that weekend to be special enough. And so that's why we pushed hard to get this done for opening weekend. And we're going to have a, I mean, this is a huge blowout. Uh, this is about as big as you can do it for, for an opening weekend. And then when the weekend's done, what's important is that we, we give the kids their season back. Like it's, it's you know, wouldn't be appropriate to have a, you know, every other weekend we're doing another memorial or doing something or right. you know, to let it linger. Yeah, I yeah. Agree. The, the the players have to have their season. Um, you know, for some of them this is their last year. For some, it's their junior year. Maybe they're getting drafted. Um, uh, the the coaching staff. I mean, they need to have their season and their team and be focused on what they're doing to have success. Because along the way, if they're successful, I mean, you know, that's a great tribute to Coach Rogue too sure. to play. Sure. In a, in a manner that he would be proud of and it, it um, so let's blow it out opening weekend and do something huge and then give the guys their season back and let them focus on what they need to focus on and um, yeah and, and what's great is we're, that's exactly what we're going to do I mean it's true it, you ever stop and think about the it's such an interesting dynamic that you're going to have generations all ages all people, all walks of life, the community, the fan base, university officials, whatever, former players, family members, we're all going to come together on a on an evening and grieve together. That is interesting to me. Yeah. You know, it means so much to so many people. I can't think of another thing I've ever experienced like that. I mean, I'll, I'll put it in perspective like this, and, you know, I, I, I might get a comment or two for being the the baby of the bunch, but I'm only 22 years old. I mean, I've lived in this area my entire life, and you know, I was I was a family friend of of Coach Rove, and you know, I, I've never known Cajuns baseball without Tony Rove being that coach. Yeah, my so, whole adult life, every Saturday so this morning, is, this is going to be to the radio. Yep. this is this is going to be you know an eye opening season for me. Definitely, uh, I know that that first pitching change. Friday night's gonna gonna hit me. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's, that's no, I, I, I didn't even uh, I didn't even think about that. I mean, that's that's what I, 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 you, you need. Know, you need a new song. Exactly. Yeah, they need to come up with a new song to yeah. go make a can't pitching be, change. Can't no be, more green onions. Can't yeah. be green onions anymore. Can't be green onions. I think that was even even. I remember going to the 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 scrimmage against Tulane back in November. Um, yeah, I mean it was a decent crowd for a, a fall ball game. Yeah, of course we show up so. Uh, there was one instance, I don't know if it was either BJ or Coach Deggs that went to the mound, and I just remember it being very quiet. Hmm. Very quiet. But it didn't really hit me as hard because I knew it was just, well, it's just a, it's a, it's a scrimmage. Yeah, it's yeah. But it's not until, I think Matt makes a good point, and I even told that to my wife, I'm like, I'm dreading that first visit to the mound. Yeah, I didn't think of that. I didn't, uh, yeah, that, that's... That will be yeah. tough. It'll or be that, odd. that corner in the dugout where Rove used to stand. Yeah. And that one little corner right t- closest to where yeah. the bats are. Well, know? 
someone asked me a similar question and I said, they asked me how I feel and um, which, my, you know, my parents are still together, but if, if my parents have been divorced or something, it's like, this is a, it's your, your stepdad. Like you, you loved your dad, your parents split up or something happened. Now your mom is with a new man and now that man has entered your life. Like, how do you feel about it? And it will be awkward. It will be uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, in all honesty, I feel like my mom is now married to a really great guy. And I will, I'll, I'll get to know him, and I've gotten to know him, and I do really like him. He's not my dad. Right. right. But I, I do really like him, and he treats my mom really well. Yeah. And that's if, if it had to be this way, this is the best it could be. Yeah, that's kind of the feeling that I have about it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah, that's fair. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Phil, you know, we, we want to end the interview with this. You know, we've done this with other former players that we've interviewed, Austin, Gunnar, Leger, you know, so on and so forth. In as few words as you can put it, what does being a raging Cajun mean to you? Oof. Boy, that's a tough. Uh, what is a raging Cajun? For me to be a raging Cajun, what does that mean to me? Right. Um, pride. It's it's uh, yeah, kind of like what we talked about earlier. Just the, the the heritage and the history of it, and to be a part of that 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 means a lot to me. That's 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 pride. It's no different than me how I feel when I say I'm I'm Canadian and the feeling when I had playing on the Canadian team in the Olympics. Anyone that knows me knows that I'm, I'm a proud Canadian. Uh, everyone in Canada knows how proud I am as a, as a Cajun, as someone living in Louisiana. Uh, that, that, that's a, that's a, a badge of honor. That's who I am. I'm a, I'm a Cajun Canadian. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and yeah, that, that's, we're different than anyone, anyone else in this country. Um, it, it's special to be a part of this community and to be a Cajun. And so, yeah, now I just did a long way around when you asked for a short answer. But that's what it is. It's pride. That's, that's a awesome. good one. I love it. That's awesome. Phil, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, obviously, you know, big plans for, for baseball this season. I'm sure we'll we'll see you around Russo Park a time or two. Yeah, awesome. Looking forward to it. All right, guys, as always, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Raging Cajun Army. And we will follow up with some more big news coming soon. What's up, Cajun Nation? This is Jerry Bear, and here is your two-minute drill. The women's basketball team took the floor this past Saturday in the Cajun Dome, falling to the Little Rock Trojans by a score of 59-44. Leading the Cajun scoring was guard Andrea Cornoyer with nine points, including two rebounds and zero assists. With the loss, Louisiana falls to a record of 13-7 overall and 6-3 in conference play. Coach Gary Broadhead and his team return to action on the road this Thursday, February 6th, when they head to Mobile, Alabama to face the South Alabama Jaguars. Tip-off is set for 6 p.m. Following that game, the team will then come back home to the Cajun Dome on Saturday, February 8th to face the Troy Trojans. Tip-off for that game is set for 2 p.m. You can catch both games on ESPN Plus or on ESPN 1420 AM where Steve Pelliquin will have the call. 
In other news, men's basketball hit the road last Thursday night and won in thrilling fashion when Cajuns forward Duque hit a three-point buzzer beater to defeat the UT Arlington Mavericks by a score of 66-65. Leading score for the Cajuns was forward Jalen Johnson with 15 points including 13 rebounds and one assist. Following that win, the Cajuns then traveled to San Marcos, Texas for a rematch with the Texas State Bobcats. But their late comeback was cut short, falling to Texas State by a score of 71-66. Leading scorer for the Cajuns in that game was guard P.J. Hardy with 16 points, including zero rebounds and two assists. The weekend split now brings the Cajuns' record to 9-14 overall and 4-8 in conference play. Coach Bob Marlin and his team will return to action at home this week, starting on Thursday, February 6th, when they face the Georgia State Panthers. Tip-off is set in the Cajun Dome for 7 p.m. Following that matchup with Georgia State, the team will then face the Georgia Southern Eagles this Saturday, February 8th. Tip-off for that game, once again in the Cajun Dome, is also set for 7 p.m. You can catch both games on ESPN Plus and also on ESPN 1420 AM or Hot 107.9 FM where Jay Walker will have the call. Also of note, the men's tennis team will get on the road to take on Rice this Friday, February 7th. Match time for that is set for 2 p.m. Softball season has arrived. The nationally ranked top 10 Cajuns will open up the season this weekend at Lamson Park with a doubleheader on Friday, February 7th. They will face both Ball State at 4 p.m. and the University of Texas San Antonio at 6 p.m. On Saturday, February 8th, the Cajuns will play another doubleheader when they face North Texas at 2 p.m. and once again, the University of Texas San Antonio at 4 p.m. Get your tickets now. Baseball season! We are just one week away from the start of baseball season as Coach Matt Deggs and his group of grinders prepare for some exciting action at Teague Field at Russo Park. Buy your season tickets now at the Cajun Dome box office or at RagingCajuns.com. And that's going to do it for your two-minute drill. I'm Jerry Bear. Go Cajuns!